If you want to make things that make things better, have fun doing it, and learn to help yourself and everyone around you flourish, well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Enliven. This is the show where we explore what's possible and the people, the principles, and the practices that are going to help you build enlivening products and enlivening organizations. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and this episode, my guest is Becky Baybrook. After getting her PhD in organizational psychology, Becky actually started her career working with the city of New Orleans. After that, she went into industry. But no matter where she worked, she's always pursued her goal of partnering with talented people at every level to create healthy work environments and bring out the best in people while building a solid business and pursuing a meaningful mission. To that end, Becky served as the global chief people officer for companies across a range of industries, from big data to embedded control networks, solar energy, and microchip development. Most recently, she's focused her advisory work on life sciences and medical device companies. In short, she's one of the most experienced HR and cultural transformation leaders in Silicon Valley. When it comes to people and culture issues, she's pretty much seen it all. Becky starts her work from the belief that organizations and leaders reveal who they are in the ways that they respond to setbacks and tests of integrity. And she spent decades helping people and companies through pivotal moments like this. In this conversation, Becky and I go deep on workplace culture. We explore some vexing questions around belonging, psychological safety, and how millennials are changing management. One area in particular that I think you'll find useful is a discussion we have about what the elements are that actually make up workplace culture. And then tactically, how can you get a good read on that culture from the outside if you're considering joining an organization? So whether you're in an organization as an individual contributor or a manager, or maybe you're in the market for a new role and really want to have a better sense of the culture in the organization you're thinking about joining, I think there's something here for you. With that, I give you Becky Baybrook. Enjoy. So first of all, welcome to the show, Becky. Thank you so much for making the time. And I'm really, really excited for this conversation. We're going to cover a lot of ground in this conversation. But so <laughs> Becky, when, when you meet somebody right now, how do you, how do you explain to them you know, that classic of American questions of what you do? How do you, what, what would you say for people <laughs> who, don't, who don't already know you? Um, well, it sort of depends on the context, but um i i see what i do um as being about creating a workplace that brings out the best in people and that brings out the best in people in service of a vision or a mission um or a direction for mm-hmm. an organization and that organizations that are highly successful um pay off for of course the, the customers or clients, they pay off for investors. But in order to do that, they really have to pay off for the people who are in them, who are making them work from the lowest level up to the highest level. And so for me, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to create a healthy workplace that brings out the best in people across the entire hierarchy um, in service of a goal or a mission that matters. I love it. That, that you, you just said so many of my favorite words in one nice, concise, <laughs> one beautifully concise package. That's how, I, that's how I think our friend Jeff said we should probably have a conversation because he knows we're both very, very interested in that topic. Um, so when you, say, when you talk about that, what is, you know, how did you get interested in this whole topic? Like, how did you get started? And what, what made you say, you know what, I want to I go spend my time working on that? Well, there's some of it is my personal biography and some of it is just... Um, opportunities along the way. So I'll start with a little bit of my personal biography. So I grew up in Hawaii. Um, most of your listeners aren't going to be able to see me, so they don't know that 
I'm I'm white, and so I'm what in Hawaii is called a Howley. Um and so my family and I were because we grew up on a in a very rural part of Hawaii, we were different. We were not we didn't look like everybody else. Um so that's part of the story. The other part of the story is that my father was a minister, and so he uh, was a pastor of churches, and churches are the ultimate in volunteer organizations. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so from a very young age, I was very interested in how people connect and relate to one another when they are very different, um, and how they connect and relate to uh, a cause. In, in the church's case, there's always a very strong sense of mission and what the church is about. So that's the biographical part. Um, I studied, I always knew that I wanted to uh, study psychology. So I did that in undergrad. And then I knew I wanted to go on to do graduate work um, and decided once I got into graduate school that what I really wanted to focus on was organizations and uh, what happens to people in organizations. And um, one of my first jobs before I even finished my uh, PhD was working with the um, New Orleans Police Department. And, and um, I know that's going to conjure up a lot of images in people's minds, but part of my role was to help them kind of sort out um, how to think about race neutral hiring and promotional practices. Hmm. Um, and when was this, by the way? Oh, in the sixties. I mean, in the seventies. Um, okay. So you were way ahead of, way ahead of most organizations in the curve. Oh no, they were doing it because a court told them they had to, you know, it was a result of a lawsuit. Oh, so <laughs> <laughs> well then never mind. <laughs> <laughs> so this is about compliance. Um, uh, but I really got to, see a whole bunch of interesting dynamics. And of course, anyone who knows New Orleans knows it's a fascinating um, set of cultures that have come together over time. So that was very formative. I got out of um, graduate school and got into a corporate environment where I was doing sort of the standard routine things that organizational psychologists do. I was doing executive assessments and attitude and opinion surveys and that kind of stuff. Um, but over time, um, I decided I wanted to be much closer to what was going on in smaller organizations. And so I left the corporate world, um, took a fairly significant demotion to go become just a run-of-the-mill HR director in a high-tech company in mm -hmm. Silicon Valley. Mm -hmm. um, and began to got to see what happens to people um, in the trenches on the front lines, um, whether it's a PhD engineer um, or a receptionist. And that's a world that I hadn't seen that clearly when I was in a corporate role where I was mostly working with CEOs and uh, operating executives. And um, I began understanding how a throwaway line, an executive can just say something randomly off the cuff in a meeting or on his way out the door, but a receptionist or a frontline engineer um, or a graphics artist can 
hear that comment and interpret it in a way that the executive probably never meant. Mm. Um, and it can have a really a ripple effect in organizations. And so I began to see the impact um, of kind of communication um, errors. And yeah. it wasn't because the executives intended to be harmful or hurtful um, or because they were egotistical or any of those things we often think of executives as being. It was just that the two sides just weren't operating in the same world. <laughs> hmm. And they weren't really talking to each other. And so I got, I got more and more interested in how culture um, takes root. And I don't, the word culture to me gets overused. So I really like to think of it in terms of people practices hmm. and what are our habits and our practices around all the people aspects of working together. So yeah, I, I want to like let's I want to double click on that and go in there a little bit. So you're right, culture is one of those terms that is obviously used all over the place, but in so many different ways. And so mm -hmm. I just want to just so we can be on the same page here. When, when you say culture, what do you mean by that? Like, do you have a definition you like? Well, yes, <laughs> most people do. I think culture is about the. Um, habits, the patterns of habits around the way people are expected to get things done and the way they actually get things done. Mm. Um, and so there's a part of culture that's always aspirational. Um, and there's a part of culture that's, you know, how it really works. And in healthy organizations, they're clear. I mean, and they're willing to be honest about where that gap is. Um, mm -hmm. and so part of it is you talk, we talk about what the values are and the values often tend to be aspirational, but they also should be expressed in terms of behaviors. Like what does integrity really look like? Um, and then there should be examples of how it's actually working right now and what, and, and how we're trying to bridge that gap and how we as an organization are holding ourselves to high standards. So I think all of those behaviors and those conversations around behavior are what create the culture. Yeah, absolutely. I, I've heard it often referred to as culture is, you know, the way we do things around here. I often think of culture like an iceberg, right? Where there's this, you know, there's the part of the iceberg you see, which is the the very visible practices, you know, the meetings, the the rituals of the company, the practices. But then there's like then there's everything else, which is most of what there is, which is all the stuff that nobody tells you when you enter an organization. Uh, you know, if you're first day on the job, your first month, you start to pick it up, and then you're going, wait a minute, this this is different. This is something about this isn't quite what I thought it was. So does that does that model or that metaphor fit with what you've seen, or, or how do you think about it? The way I would describe that is. You're right. That's all culture. Um, I think there's a continuum of unhealthy or dysfunctional culture, and then there's healthy and functional culture. Mm -hmm. And at the dysfunctional end, you see the very tip of the iceberg above the water. And, and there are lots of things that are hidden and not talked about and not discussed that you discover sort of in an underground way. 
in the healthy cultures, I think it's just more transparent. I mean, there's more of the iceberg is above the waterline. <laughs> and people can talk about it safely, even talk about the things about the culture that they need to change, that they uh, that aren't working well for them. Um, and, and so that's that's how I would um, sort of footnote your your definition. I like that. So it's like the iceberg sort of metaphor works a little bit. It's almost like you can tell how healthy it is based on how much of the total you can see. So how mm -hmm. almost how how opaque is the culture? And it, it's, it seems like what you're saying is there's a balance between or there's there's some um, some trade off between how much of, of all the way things really work is actually up. For, are they upfront about mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. they explicit about it, they tell right. you about? Um, I, I think another another piece of that, though, is the part of the culture that's aspirational. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people often forget this, that um, marketplaces change, technology changes. And so companies have to change. And that means sometimes the culture has to change, not because it was bad, not because it was toxic or dysfunctional, but because what it's going to take to survive and be successful just has to change. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's important not to forget that there's a piece of culture that should always be about aspiring to be better than we are in, in mm -hmm. how we get things done. It's, I find that people sometimes get stuck on this idea that if you're reaching for something, you're unhappy with the way things are or that mm -hmm. something's wrong with the way things are. Mm -hmm. How do you deal with that in the conversations you have with when you, you know, when you work with an organization now, whether it's sort of at a large setting or if you're kind of doing maybe more one-on-one -on -one with executives or somebody you might be coaching? Okay, so how tall were you when you were 10 years old? Uh, wow, I don't know. I was short. I was probably four foot something. Let's okay. say four foot five. I don't know. Okay, and how tall are you now? 5'11". Okay. So, was it bad to be 4 foot 10 when you were 10 years old? There were a few days, actually, yeah. <laughs> if you really want to know, yeah, there, there were a couple of days where it sort of sucked. <laughs> Got picked last for basketball. basketball. It was rough. It was rough, man. Um, but there wasn't but no, much you no, could no, do there, about it, right? Nothing I could do about it. Yeah, yeah. No, there was nothing actually wrong. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> So, there were some stories I didn't like, but you know. Yeah, yeah. So I just tell people, get over this being so judgmental. That the the judgmental part of what you just described, that this has to be good or bad, um, gets in our way. It just gets in our way so often. Um, because what really we're talking about is things just need to be different. Um, mm -hmm. And that's just because of the world we find ourselves in. Um, and sometimes there are good reasons. Sometimes there are things happening, that, dynamics that we wish weren't happening. Um, but you have to accept what is around you and um, adapt to it and evolve to it. And well, this getting off, the topic a little bit, but one of my favorite books of all time, science books of all time, is The Beak of the mm -hmm. Finch. If you've oh, no, I've not. Well, tell me about that. It. So, this is a book about how 
about evolution in the Galapagos. And it's probably the one of the best books written about field research that describes evolution in action. And if you read it, and it's very, very well, well written, and you take it as a metaphor um, or at least a thought experiment around how organizations change, it's really mm-hmm. about animals adapting to their food sources. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so the shape of their beaks change from generation to generation. And okay. it's just about how do I get more food? How do I survive? And how and, do I adapt to my environment and environment, be fit yeah. for the new conditions? Right, 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 right. And so instead of thinking that that's a good or a bad thing, it's more about what's useful. Mm. What's useful. And it's very pragmatic. Um, and I, I think we've lost some of that in, in organizations um, or in the way people think about their lives now. Mm. What do you make of that? Oh, now we're getting philosophical, but I think it's in part because we live in a fairly polarized world where it people feel like they have to take sides hmm. um, or they have to have a deep cause that motivates and propels them. Um, and there's a time and a place for all of that, for sure. But I also think there's something deeply satisfying about being able to get things done. And sometimes <laughs> it's just, okay, what's the most practical way to get this done? And if it's different than the way I did it in the past, you know, how do I learn how to do it? Or how do I find somebody else who can do it for me or help me see how to do it? Um, and I think the cult, some of the cultures that are the healthiest are the ones that are most and most resilient are the ones that are most flexible and that separate out. Certainly there are some things in life where there is a difference between good and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to issues around integrity, for sure. But then there are other parts of life where like communication. Okay. So sometimes or it's, better to have a group meeting and sometimes it's better to talk to everyone one-on-one and there's there's no good inherently good or bad about either approach it's just which one's going to work the best mm-hmm. and at different times different things work better than others and so let's not get too hung up about that right you know kind of using the right tool for the job so to speak right 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 and and i think you know Lots of, I've seen too many executives who are leading some kind of change in the organization get up and say, you know, we're pivoting, we're going in a different direction, Um, we're going to be eliminating 100 positions, so 100 of you aren't going to be here next week, blah, blah, and, Mm. and, um, or we're being taken over by somebody who's buying us and it's all the implicit message is we did something wrong or you did something wrong. And that's why we ended up here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so unnecessary because a lot of Mm -hmm. that is just, well, 
first of all, if I'm an employee sitting there listening to that speech, I'm saying, I didn't do anything wrong. You, Mr. CEO, did something wrong because you didn't figure this out. <laughs> you're our leader. You're supposed to keep this from happening. Yeah, you're supposed to protect us. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it, but there's so much about the business world and that's um, happens just by chance. Uh, it's It's fairly random. And so hmm. it's important to control the things we can control. Um, but beating up on people or organizations or saying that we were bad and, you know, now we're going to be good. It's, it's just not useful. <laughs> yeah. So I want to, I want to, I was, I'm hoping you could give, maybe give me an example. Cause I know you've, you've seen such a wide range of business situations, right? You've seen turnarounds, you've seen mergers and acquisitions, you've seen shutdowns, you've seen startups, you've kind of seen it all. And, you know, especially when we're talking about things in the world of technology, which a lot of the listeners of this show are involved with in some form mm -hmm. or fashion, you know, it's a volatile world. It's unpredictable. It's fast. It's mm -hmm. complex. Mm -hmm. It's, it's extraordinarily, I mean, it's very, that's one of the things people like about it, right? Is that mm -hmm. it's so dynamic and interesting. Um, but it does make this kind of thing a little bit more challenging. So what I'm, I'm hoping is if, as you think back over, maybe you could help us, help us understand what is it like? So you kind of just painted a broad picture of what this looks like when it's probably not being done very well by mm -hmm. whoever, whoever's leading this conversation and this, this sort of change effort. Maybe could you give me an example of like maybe a, a contrasted example of you know, here's what it looks like. Here's what people are like, the traps that someone's likely to fall into when they're going through a difficult situation. And then how do we how should they navigate that? How do they deal with those traps and avoid them? Um, a couple of things I think are Im important. Um, one is. <laughs> The, the leadership of the organization. So I, I think of the organizations as having a bunch of people that are sort of between zero and a thousand feet off the ground. And mm -hmm. they have, you know, that much perspective. They can see that far towards the horizon because they mm -hmm. have, they're working in that, um, on those elevations. Mm -hmm. And they have assignments and responsibilities and ideas and expertise, and they're the engine and you have to give them kind of enough direction so that they can really um, do what they're best at. And mm -hmm. from people who are designing chips to people who are designing software to what I currently do most now, working with scientists who are researching cures for heart disease or um, neurological diseases or doing drug development, that engine has to work well. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have sort of the middle of the pyramid, which are the people that are, uh, I'd say, at about a thousand to five, eight, maybe even 10,000 feet. And they have, they can see further, right? They can see more mm -hmm. of the landscape. And it's their job to see, to keep an eye on what in that landscape might be impacting the folks who are lower on the mountain who are getting mm -hmm. all this work done. And mm -hmm. it, sometimes it's new technology that can make us more efficient. Sometimes it's competition, whatever. But 
at the very top of the pyramid are the executives and the leaders of the organization who have the farthest line of sight, both to see where the opportunities are, but where the risks are. And Mm. they need to be very, very good at that. And what often happens, in my experience, is instead of being as good at that as they should be, they spend time looking down the slopes of the mountain saying, oh, that group down there at the 500 foot level isn't as productive as I think they should be. So I'm going to reorganize everyone so they'll be more productive. Mm. Well, they're meddling. They're meddling. And, and I, so my, my not so secret theory is that executives do a lot of damage um, by deciding that they have to be busy all the time. Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) they you know i think their job is kind of about making sure that the homeostasis works that the rest of the system is working well and that they're looking out for opportunities or threats that um need you need to adjust to now because they're coming at us, you know, mm-hmm. and to see that coming and to figure out how to adjust, which is quite risky and quite scary. Actually, I think those jobs mm-hmm. at the top are very scary when they're done right. Um, and so to go back to your question about, you know, how, how, how does this happen that companies get taken over, people get laid off? I think that's part of it. Um, Mm. I think part of it is that the technology, well, this is also my, we're getting far away from culture, but my theory is that you get a lot of startup money invested in companies that are um, trying to copy what somebody else has already done. And then Mm -hmm. you have too many companies trying to do the same thing and there's going to inevitably there's going to be some shakeout. Sure. Um, yeah. There's a lot of me too companies just, just yeah. sort of copycats. Right, 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 right. Um, and, and so to go back to the whole issue of culture, it's always a reminder to me that culture isn't the whole story. I mean, culture is a piece of it. And I think you need a strong and healthy culture to get the best talent and to get the most out of the best talent. But you also got to have a vision. You've got to have an idea that's competitive, that's going to work and you've got to be able to execute. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, what I, I agree with what you're saying, but what I find so fascinating and I, I feel like this is just my perception, but it feels yeah. to me being as I, as I'm, you know, for example, I was actually just up in San Francisco earlier half this week. I was at a conference, met a whole bunch of people from all over the country. It's actually from all over the world, in fact, uh, who, who had flown in for this conference and, you know, talking about technology and product and, um, a lot, you know, a lot of my favorite topics that I just love to nerd out on. But it, what was so interesting to me was there was what seemed like the beginnings of a new conversation, much more about culture than I have at least perceived in the past. Now that could totally be just my perception. That could just be that I, I don't know, I just wasn't listening or I wasn't paying attention or wasn't maybe in the right conversations or spaces. I don't know, but it does feel at least to me like something is shifting. 
And my, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're sort of speculating a little bit. My, my personal speculation is that it has to do with sort of, sort of the, um, uh, the rising, we'll call it the rising managerial influence of millennials. Um, you know, millennials are before they were dramatically affecting marketing and branding. Uh, because a lot of companies were studying them of how do we appeal to this generation? Mm-hmm. And they saw lots of things about like, okay, this, this generation really craves aspirational ideals. They crave meaning, they crave purpose, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they're not just the consumers anymore. They're starting to become, you know, middle managers. Some of them are CEOs now, et cetera, et cetera. And I think a lot of that, um, uh, I don't know, generational, I don't even know what the right word is, but the generational mm-hmm. kind of zeitgeist that millennials have is starting to show up now in the, in the conversation about like what, how do we, how do we do what we do? I'm mm-hmm. curious, what do you think about that? What do you make of that? I, I think that's true. I think there's a part of it. That's part of it. I think there's another part of it, but let me talk about the millennial part of it. I think um, my experience with millennials has generally been that they're just mo- more outspoken and demanding about the same things that everyone else was thinking already thinking about <laughs> but didn't demand like as as quickly or as clearly um and so they're saying i want more investment in my career i want to be able to speak up and say what i think i want real responsibility i want the rewards that come from having real responsibility i want um i want you to tell me what I'm going to be paid. I want to know what my career path looks like. I want, I I don't want to rely on somebody in a corner office to take care of my career, Um, Mm. which I think is all good and healthy. And I think organizations have kind of in their own way taught millennials that this is important because I think lots of them saw their parents or their grandparents get fired, get laid off, get Mm -hmm. pushed under abusive managers Mm -hmm. or end up in dead end jobs that they weren't happy with. Um, Mm -hmm. And so three cheers for them to say, no, I'm not going to compromise. This is what I want. Now, I think sometimes they don't stop to really understand um, and organizations don't always give them ways to understand what kind of maturity it takes to be a real leader Mm. and, and how to navigate some of the issues they're going to face, which are Mm -hmm. where there are no good solutions and it may look simple from the outside, but you get into it and it's very complex. Never is right. It's never easy. So, so that's a piece of it. I think the other piece of it though, is this, especially in the Bay area, this competition for talent, because there are so many jobs and there are, aren't as many talented people as there are jobs. And so people are getting called by recruiters. They're getting promised all kinds of things. They're getting wooed and romanced um, Mm -hmm. in ways that, you know, who I would, if, if I were the target of that kind of attention, I'd say, of course I must be this good. Of course I must know what I'm doing. They're offering me a 20% pay increase. <laughs> I must be good. <laughs> Goes to your head, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Now, yeah. I, I, what I don't know is how that dynamic and the millennial um, 
values and behavior will change if we go into something like the recession we had in 2008, where mm-hmm. suddenly there aren't a lot of jobs. Um, I also don't know much about how millennials are coping with college debt, for example, or coming out of school mm. with um, just yeah, enormous resources enormous to, mm-hmm. ha- to have the kind of life that their parents did coming out of school. Um, and so I- I'm sensitive to the fact that there's that dynamic out there as well, even though I don't see much of it here in the Bay Area. Yep. So one thing I'm, I'm curious about, you, you, when we were talking about that, you mentioned that millennials, um, certainly that we're, we're making very blanket statements right now, and there's, of course, a huge variance inside of these generalizations. Mm-hmm. But you know, you've observed, it sounds like you've observed that quite a few of the millennials that are wanting to step into the, you know, some real leadership, some real responsibility. I think the words you used was they're, they're just, they're not quite, it's not that they're not ready for it, but maybe they're just not emotionally mature enough for it yet. Or you mentioned the word maturity. I'm curious if you could just kind of unpack that a little bit and then more specifically to make it actionable. If someone, how does someone, what I'm, what I'm thinking about here, what's going through my head is that um, the people who are in these situations are probably unaware that they are not ready for it and they just like they think they are ready or they're entitled to it or something like that how do you break through to somebody and then get them to hear it and what is it that they actually need to what, what is the what is the growth that they that actually needs to happen so one of the things i've i've heard over and over again is millennials don't they trust each other more than they trust the generation ahead of them um and and i think I under I think I understand where that's coming from because I think they feel that um whether it's generation X or Y or boomers or whoever, um a lot of folks who are in those management and executive seats are staying there and are not creating opportunities mm-hmm. for millennials and are not necessarily very good at investing, mentoring, and giving millennials more to do or more Mm. responsibility or Mm -hmm. helping them really understand here's a situation let's talk about the trade-offs we have to make here or here's how this budget works here are some of the limits and constraints and let's figure out how uh how to work through this and then sometimes when millennials come up with ideas and say well let's have unlimited vacation and Mm -hmm. you get a sort of more traditional (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> manager <laughs> or chief finance officer or someone like that uh, operations officer says, no, there's no way we can do that. That's, mm-hmm. and, but then they, you know, then they come out with the Netflix slides and say, well, but Netflix does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it becomes more of a conflict between worldviews, if you want to call them that and less of a, what are we trying to accomplish? And let's figure out a path forward that works for everybody. And so I can see why millennials would say, uh, you know, that generation is just getting in our way. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, and that's unfortunate. Um, very unfortunate. On the other hand, I've also seen millennials promoted too quickly and who decide that um, 
good management is about taking your team out for beer every afternoon. Now hmm. I'm overstating that a little bit, but um, I've also seen millennials who were not had not learned how to separate friendship from managing your former peers. Mm-hmm. And and as a result of not understanding the differences in the role, not being able to have some of the more difficult conversations or even see some of the dynamics in their team mm-hmm. because their their filter was, these are my friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's one of the hardest transitions someone can make, I think, is is going yeah. from Oh, you know, I because it, it, it totally changes your entire experience of work, frankly, uh, which right. is such a right. core part of our lives. Uh, you know, it's not our entire right, right. lives, but it's a big, big, big chunk. So, yeah. how do you, you know, how do you coach somebody who's in that situation? Let's say you've got a, you know, a twenty-eight year old person, a twenty-eight year old woman who's just been promoted from from amongst her, you know, quote peer group, um, mm-hmm. and is now the manager, and mm-hmm. she's, you know, obviously she's very competent, she's very skilled. How do you, how would you coach her if you saw her? making this what seems like a, a, a fairly common type of mistake of, you know, un, not understanding roles and boundaries. And, and that's sort of what I hear in there. What, what would you do about that? How would you coach that person? Assuming they were in fact willing to be coachable and do the work. Just <laughs> well, always something. I, al- <laughs> I, I always start with why did you want to be a manager? I, mm. I, I mean, I just think it's understanding why do you want to be a manager? Um, and there are many, many, many different reasons people have. Um, and, uh, you know, I think the, the coaching relationship, like any relationship where you have influence, but not any formal power, mm-hmm. my metaphor for this is surfing, right? So, Okay. You, you go out. To, remember, I grew up in Hawaii. So you go out to the beach. Which you, island, by the way? Kauai. Oh, Kauai. Nice. So, so you're you're dragging your surfboard with you, and you're going out. You're paddling out, and then you're sitting there, and you wait for the waves to come. And your yep. job is to be very vigilant, very watchful, very observant, understand what the cadence and the pattern of the waves and the tides and the currents and of course the the rocks or the sand or whatever it is. But you have to wait for the wave and then you have to catch the wave. And I think coaching and influence is a lot about being able to see when the wave, when the other person is catchable and creating that moment or being there in that moment when that other person is really ready to hear hmm. uh, what or to consider the questions that mm-hmm. you're asking. Um, and so you got to kind of create enough of a relationship so that you can be there uh, at that moment to have that conversation and to make that point or to ask that question and get someone to see it. Um, what are the signs you look for? How do you know when it is the right moment? Oh, um, I don't know that I can tell you that. I just, I, you know, I've just done it for a long time and I've made enough mistakes. I I can tell when I've said something too soon or I've been too direct. People are different. So some people want to just be told directly and some millennials will say, 
just tell me what I, how I'm screwing up. Just be direct. I'm not going to understand it if you just if you don't just blurt it out and tell me. Mm-hmm. And others, they want to figure it out on their own. Mm-hmm. And there are people who who learn that way, and it's kind of trial and error, and it's kind of don't tell me, let me figure it out. And sometimes it's more about asking them questions or saying, "Have you considered this?" or um, Let's talk. Let's do a thought experiment. It's another one of my favorite <laughs> ways to get into uh, into things um, and help them discover it for themselves. So there's some is the Socratic method mm-hmm. and some is the, you know, were you happy with what just happened there? <laughs> 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 because I think you really screwed up, you know, but it, de- it depends a lot on, on the person mm-hmm. and the relationship that you've built with them. Yeah, you have to have that sort of you have to have that background of of relatedness, that trust uh, built mm-hmm. up enough to have some of these harder conversations, mm-hmm. right? You can't mm-hmm. you you don't just right. get to you know that's not how relationships work. You don't get to just walk in and be like, bam, here you go. Um, even yeah, if, yeah, yeah. I mean, some right. people you'll you'll get there faster. Uh, right, right. Are there right. any um, on that note? Are there any particular approaches you've seen, whether it's you know a book or a resource, where you you found that you've seen people have good success or you know repeatedly kind of learn this skill? when they look from this, this perspective? So I think the, the approach that I've used the most and that I've seen most helpful is something called crucial conversations. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Um, so I it's have a pretty famous book, book, isn't it? It's um, cru- yeah. It's crucial conversations, tools for talking when stakes are high. And um, they also have a, can't even remember the name of it. Uh, they have a a um, website. They do training, and they do um, a newsletter, which I get and read religiously. Let me see if I can find it for you. Crucial conversations. Um, okay, we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Yeah, I I think it's, and I don't use everything uh, they've done, but I go back to them over and over and over again. Um, And I just find it to be really helpful, really um, thoughtful. Thoughtful. Perfect. Um, And part of it is being vital smarts is what it's called. Vital smarts. Vital vital smarts. Um, Another one I've heard a lot of people talk about is, uh, is radical candor by, I believe it's Kim. Is it Kim Scott? I think is her name. Yeah. Yeah. I've heard of that. I I haven't read it. Okay. Um, I think so that issue, that topic I have trouble with, um, because I've been in organizations where I have seen people who were really honest be um, destroyed Mm. Um, because you're taking a huge risk. Um, And unless you really are ready to take that risk and ready for everything it means, or you really understand the people you're being honest with, um, it can backfire. Hmm. And, and I've also seen people totally misunderstand it and, and particularly executives who think radical candor or 
transparency is, okay, I just fired the head of sales. Now I'm going to stand up in an all hands meeting and tell everyone I just fired the head of sales because he was falsifying expense reports. Well, this is not a true story, but this is mm-hmm. taken. This is something similar to this has happened. Okay, and great. then you get, and then you get, well, was that slander? Was it, um, what, it what, are, what are the damages to that person who got fired? Mm. Everyone has heard this. They're now spreading it around in the industry. It's going to hurt his reputation. Mm-hmm. Well, that wasn't, you know, and, and sure. all in the spirit of, oh, well, we need to be transparent. No, you don't need to be transparent about everything. In fact, it's not helpful to be transparent about everything. It's transparency is important for a purpose. Um, but I think a, there's a certain amount of transparency is important to build trust. But when transparency comes up as a value in organizations in the work I do, I yeah. always tell executives, be sure you explain what the limits are, that you're going to be transparent about the process. You will be transparent about decisions um, up about business decisions, but you will protect the privacy and show respect for individuals involved. Um, and that if it's if there's an individual situation um, that has led to a particular decision, out of respect for the individual uh, and their feelings and their rights, we're not going to tell you everything that happened that happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that to me is the right form of transparency. It's saying ahead ahead of time, here's what we're going to be transparent about. Here's what's off limits and here's why. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, we're going to extend that same value to you, by the way. So if you're the person who, um, who got fired or who, uh, has a serious illness mm-hmm. or or what whatever it is sure we're we're just not gonna gonna yeah. share that with people yeah i'm hearing you really say emphasize because transparency is another one of those one of those words that gets thrown around so much these days and you have mm-hmm. to ask well okay well, what does that actually mean what does it look like mm-hmm. and i think you bring up such mm-hmm. a good point about it transparency doesn't necessarily mean 100% disclosure of everything like that in many cases that right. would actually be irresponsible but it seems like what if i'm right. hearing you right it's much more about it's 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 it seems like it's a combination of clarity and fairness right in the in the idea of being upfront with people about where what is on the table that you're going to share at, you know, it seems like it's really about sharing as much as you can while still being responsible to certain realities about whether it's individual privacy or sometimes there's regulatory things. You know, if you're, for example, you're doing mm-hmm. a major deal uh, that involves M and A, sometimes there are like legal things that you, right. you, you can't, right. you just can't right. talk right. about. Um, right, right, right. An example I've heard that uh, a culture, one particular culture I've heard heard of, although I've never experienced directly, um, that is, I think, probably deals with this a lot. Is um, are you familiar with Bridgewater Associates and, and Ray Dalio? So, so fascinating, fascinating place. You might, you might check it out. Uh, so Ray Dalio is, he started the, he's a, he's 
pretty much the most successful hedge fund manager ever um, in the history of Earth, uh, <laughs> or, or which I guess is anywhere, because I don't think there's any hedge fund managers on other planets, or if there are, we don't know about them yet. Moving on. Uh, so he started this. He started this hedge fund called Bridgewater. I don't know 30, 40 years ago. They are now uh-huh. far and away the most successful uh, hedge fund, just not even close. Um, and they have a very, very particular culture. Uh, and he he put out a book. I think it was two years ago called Principles that was all about their uh, basically the operating principles that they've come to and basically how he runs his mm-hmm. life, how they run Bridgewater, because they have such a distinct culture that they are very different than any other normal <laughs> or tip, not normal, typical, typical culture you might yeah. find. And two of their big things, one of their big things is this idea of radical transparency. Right. And that is so baked into their culture that, I mean, it, it really is radical relative to a, a typical corporate culture. But even they, I mean, when I say radical transparency, they have practices like um, every meeting is recorded and publicly available. Right. So there's no there's no secret meetings. Right. Um, but publicly available to whom? To the, within within the company. To, within the company, yeah, within right. the company, and then, yeah, but, but yeah. and so they 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 have things like that. They, you know, everything is publicly um, available within the company. Uh, they have, yeah. I mean, they, I mean, this is people dealing with very, very sensitive financial information and extraordinary mm-hmm. amounts of wealth. Um, and one of the things, to your point, uh, I'm kind of, I'm kind of rambling here, but the the point, the reason I thought of it was they, they also, even within there, they say we're going to be as absolutely transparent as we can be, but here's the edge: there are certain conversations that we won't because it violates a client's privacy, because it would. Um, violate a regulatory, uh, you know, uh, requirement around some deal that we're mm-hmm. doing or something like that. And, and it seems mm-hmm. by and large that people are okay with that as long as they're just being yeah. told up front and then you're actually right. do, you right. know, following through on the rest of it. Right. So I, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think there are three things that build trust in a culture. Uh, one is being open or transparent about process. Mm-hmm. So particularly, I think, processes involving promotions and pay and things that impact people. Um, I think being consistent in the use of the process so that people see that, okay, you said you were going to do it this way and this is the way you actually do it. Mm -hmm. And the third is having a way to appeal. Um, So Mm. if you see something happens that happening that doesn't seem consistent with what the company said it's about or what its process is, um, you, there's someplace you can go. Mm-hmm. You can say, I want to understand this. This didn't make sense to me. And uh, I want more information. Uh, and so I think if those three things are present, whether it's informally or formally or both, I think that creates a, a, a perception of fairness um, and it starts to create more psychological safety, which I think is critical, is one, but not the whole story behind trust. I, I love it. And that's actually, I want to, let's, let's, let's explore that a little bit more because I want to, I want to actually dig into psychological safety uh, a bit more here. So you, you mentioned, I think the three you just said were, were transparency, consistency, and a sort of a, a, a mechanism of appeal or um, right. further investigation, if you want to call it that. So mm-hmm. tell me about psychological safety, because this is, this is another one of these um, terms that is quickly rising in the larger conversation, certainly within the tech industry. I'm seeing it everywhere. I was at, a, as I said, I was at this conference earlier this week, fantastic conference. Um, and I went to the, the leadership forum on Monday and this was a 
like top line topic. There was, which I was happy, but surprised to see, pleasantly surprised. Uh, It was probably a third of the the time was spent on something either directly or closely related to psychological safety. So for people who aren't familiar with that, could you just explain what, what does that actually mean and why is this bubbling up so much right now? Well, what it means is that you work, and it's applied to the workplace, but it can be true in any relationship, that in the relationships that you have to, you need at work, um, you feel secure and safe enough to raise difficult issues, things that would feel that might be threatening. That's going to be very different for different people. Things that might threaten your job security, might threaten your relationship with your boss or your peers, your work assignments, um, anything that feels like it's a little risky, a little scary. So best example in my world is, and this happens a lot, and you know the Bay Area. We've got people here from all different cultures. Mm-hmm many, many different cultures, and they have very different norms around um, physical space. Mm -hmm. Sure. And so in some cultures, standing really close to each other is fine. Mm -hmm. And in some cultures, um, it's very uncomfortable. Um, So this is, may seem like a trivial example, but then you layer into that um, gender issues. And so there are, this is at, at the most sort of innocent level, women from one culture being able to say to men from another culture, you're getting too close to me. Mm-hmm. And having that be okay. Mm-hmm. And that the, this man from this other culture doesn't take offense at that doesn't decide this is someone he doesn't need to pay attention to, um, respects her for saying that, Mm -hmm. and then is willing to adjust his behavior as a result. Um, That's psychological safety. It's really hard to do. Yeah. And I actually, I think people are talking about it a lot because it's like emotional intelligence. It sounds neat and it sounds like, Oh, yeah, this is a good thing. But making that actually happen in organizations is really, really tough. So I'll give you I'll give you an example. So we I in almost all of my clients are right now are small companies Mm -hmm. that have somewhere between 25 and 50 employees. Okay, And so one of the first things we do is figure out how are people going to get feedback? Mm. And is it going to be a formal process, an informal process, blah, 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 all of that. And one of the things I always put on the table very early on in the design discussion is, are employees going to be able to give their feedback to their managers? So is there going to be 360 or upward feedback? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that. So first of all, I'm listening for the CEO and the top executives. What's their answer to that question? And they say, oh, yes, absolutely. We want 
We want them to do that. Okay. Most cases they say, oh yeah, that's a good thing. Let's do that. Then we roll it out and we say, okay, here's a question on the form. It says, what, what would you like your manager to do more of? Well, it's actually, what do you appreciate that your manager is doing now? What would you like him or her to do more of and or do differently? Okay. So it's a pretty neutral question, right? Mm -hmm. It's not saying, what are you doing bad? It's do more of, do differently, do less of. And one easy way to measure psychological safety is to just look at all those answers Mm -hmm. and see how many people actually wrote anything. Mm And how many, and what was the nature of the answer? So you can score them, which I do. Um, is it all positive? Is it all, I love my manager. My manager is great. I've never had such a good manager. Or is there a combination of my manager is great. I would like my manager to do more of this, this, or the other. Mm-hmm. How m- many risks are people taking mm-hmm. in what they're saying back to their manager? Knowing that HR will probably see this as well. And and that's a way to make this whole notion of psychological safety very tangible. Because you can you could measure it. You could say, okay, based on this, we think we don't have much psychological safety. People aren't speaking up. As I'm trying to understand this more, what it what it you know, if someone isn't working with a true HR professional, someone who really, you know knows how to lead these processes, what I'm wondering is you know, if if you're out there and let's say you're, you know, you own or you're um, a founder of a small company, let's say you've got, you know, 10, 15 people and maybe you don't have the resources right now to work with somebody like yourself. How can someone in that situation or even maybe just a manager of a team inside of an organization that wants to use, you know, their team where they have direct influence as sort of a, you know, a stepping stone to hopefully making a larger cultural change? How can they go about, first of all, assessing this? Without you know what, what a simplified way of assessing this, and then what what do they do about it? How do they how do they actually take action on this? Well, I would start by reading the Crucial Conversations book because they have a whole chapter. I mean, that's one of the themes: is how do you create psychological safety so that you can talk about risky, scary things? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I think there's a lot of foundation there. Um, but the other thing. I guess I'd have two recommendations, particularly for founders. Um, so I have consistently, with very few exceptions, seen that founders confuse, are confused about how other people see them. Hmm. Say more about that. And they they tend to think that they are they tend to underestimate how much fear they can create in other people just by the nature of being the founder who has who's getting the money to create the company who can basically say i don't like you go away mm-hmm. And even though the founder has no intention of doing that, they still have that power. Yep. And once they start talking to 
investors and getting money and getting it organized and having lawyers and talking about cap tables and controlling interest and all that stuff. All of a sudden, they are in a different world. And the, the, you know, five people that they used to sit around bullshitting around about technology and, you know, who's coding this and, you know, isn't this cool? Those, those, those conversations just change fundamentally. And so that collegial give and take, um, kind of we're, we're just buddies sitting around in a garage goes away. Mm-hmm. It just changes. Yeah. And I think there are a, a lot of founders who don't realize that or want to think that they can recreate or go back to that buddy sitting around mm-hmm. in the garage. Um, and once there's a power differential in an organization, that changes the terms of um, psychological safety. And it means the founders have to do a lot more work to create and maintain psychological safety. Um, and it's often hard for them. No, please. I was just going to say, you know, once if someone realizes they have this challenge, right, they, things have gotten serious, right? And it's, it's sort of moved beyond the, Hey, it's a couple of us, a couple of buddies hanging out in the garage. And now it's real, right? You've taken, maybe you've taken investor money. Maybe you're, maybe you're inside a bigger organization and, you know, you pitched a big project and they, you know, it got greenlit and now you're on the hook for this thing. Um, what do you, what is, what, what is someone in that situation to do? How do they, how should they actually go about creating the psychological safety? Is there like a, where, or maybe there's, I'm sure there's many things, but where would you have them start? Um, before I answer that question, one thing I point out, cause I think it's practical and helpful. So when you're a founder or to your point, you you get a big project, you're part of a bigger company. Generally, you're getting shares, um, you're getting equity, or you're getting a bonus. You're get there is some payoff mm-hmm. that's different for you than it is for everybody else. And usually that's not a big secret. Okay. Eventually people find out. <laughs> so don't try to hide it. But don't flaunt it either. I mean, don't go in and talk about the new Tesla that you're picking up, you know, or having delivered to you that night. Yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, don't, don't be that I've don't, seen don't, too many. One, don't be that guy. <laughs> don't be that guy. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So what, what, you what know, would and, the next step be? And so uh, the next step is um, it depends. Well, I would say on some level, um, you have to go back to the individuals that you were closest to in either one-on-one, usually probably one-on-one, but maybe in a group setting, say, look, I know that I'm in a, in a different role now, and I know that that's going to impact our relationship because there are going to be some decisions I know about that you're not going to know about or that I'm going to be part of making and you're not going to be part of making. So you kind of have to acknowledge the reality mm-hmm. first. And then you say, but I want you to know that I still, your input, your point of view, your ideas, the creative process that we share together is really important to me. And we can't be successful without that. Mm. So you have to go back and say, 
here's how I value our relationship and your individual contribution. And here's what you mean, not just to this company we're creating or this project we're working on, but to me personally. Mm -hmm. And I want to preserve, and then you can talk about the kind of communication you want to preserve and say, I want you to be, I need you to challenge me. I need you to tell me when I've got my head in the sand or worse. Um, I need you to tell me when you think I'm going in the wrong direction. I may not always agree with you. Um, and I may know some things that you don't know, but I will always value and listen to what you have to say to me. Mm. And I think having, having, having that kind of conversation and really meeting it, not doing it because, you know, there's a script and you heard it on a podcast and it sounded good. <laughs> Becky told you, but, <laughs> but really meaning it and being sincere and genuine about it. Yeah. Now the next part of it, and this is the even harder part is there comes a time in almost every venture when one of the original five or seven doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. And in my experience, everybody knows that weeks, sometimes months before the founder does anything about it. Huh. Even the person who knows that he doesn't belong anymore, it's usually a he or she doesn't belong anymore, is waiting for the CEO, the founder, to do something about it. It's the and the founder is typically the person who takes too long, and I think part of it is because the founder often doesn't know how to have that conversation. Mm -hmm. And you can have that conversation in a very respectful, genuine, honest way, mm -hmm. um, but you have to have it. This is such a such a juicy topic because you know this is this this to me is a paradox and which is why i'm so so intrigued by it because on the one hand mm -hmm. if psychological safety means having that sense of safety and belonging which is a, sort of what are sort of the prerequisites to have those to have to take those risks right to to put yourself out there to say hey i don't know about this to disagree uh almost like it's it's safe to safe to have conflict um uh how then, so where does, where does belonging fit into all this? Like, you know, what is it you see that happens where this particular person no longer fits anymore? Uh, is it, is it just that the culture has changed? Is it that what the company needs is different now? What is it that usually causes this kind of thing? There are a bunch of different things, but remember, I, I think it's really important when you're talking about psychological safety. Um, what is safe? Hmm. So none of our jobs are safe. Jobs are never safe. Even the CEO's job, the board, the investors could come in and say, sorry, we think you're, yeah, you're out. You know, not the right person. Yep. You're out. So the job is never safe. The company is never safe. What is safe? What can be safe are the relationships hmm. because that's what we control. And so when I think about psychological safety, I think about is my relationship with you or with this team solid enough that 
I is it is the relationship solid enough? And do I have the skills that I need to raise difficult topics with you in a way that's respectful but honest? Mm-hmm. And so there are two things there. There's the relationship we built over time, but there's also the skills I have and the skills I believe you have. Um, and and that's why I think if you want to create psychological safety in an organization, you have to invest a lot of time in how to talk about things, how to set it up, how to communicate and practice it. Mm. Um, and at the end of the day, it's not about promising anyone safety for their job. I mean, someone comes to me and says, I have falsified um, test data on a medical device. No one's getting psychological safety for that. Sorry. Yeah. That's an integrity issue. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a major deal. Yeah. Yeah. Or someone, um, but if someone comes to me and says, you know, I was supposed to deliver test results. Um, well, in my case, the kinds of things I work on, I was supposed to get you this data um, for uh, a pay review um, by Monday and I screwed up and I did the analysis wrong and I have to redo it and it's not going to be ready until Friday. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, I'm going to react to that very differently than I would react to someone coming in and saying I falsified the data sure. that was sent to the FDA. Sure. <laughs> yeah, very different situation. <laughs> <laughs> You're right, right. One, one is like we got to scramble to rearrange timelines. The other jeopardizes the entire company mm. and could jeopardize patients. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so totally different dimensions of risk. So um, I think the I think that's what you have got to remember to re- solve the paradox is that psychological safety is more about the relationship than it is about am I going to get to keep my job or not? Because that's just it's apples and oranges, I think. Mm. Um, so psychological safety is my, my relationships are solid enough that I can raise difficult, sensitive issues early before, um, well, while, while there are still many degrees of freedom for solutions to do something about it. Yeah. So how, let's say, let's imagine, I want to, I want to make this concrete. So let's imagine you've got someone who, um, so one of the things that, let me take a step back. I, I've personally become very interested in, in culture, um, for a number of different reasons. But I mean, the biggest one is very similar to how you got interested in it is for, for me, you know, we spend so much of our lives at work and I want, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm committed to having people spend their time in an environment that brings out the best in them that, you know, helps them be more alive because of what they do, not less alive because of what they do. Mm-hmm. And, um, which is actually where the title of this show came from in the first place. <laughs> um, my, my, my question though is the, as I've started to explore these topics, one of the common refrains I've heard from people who know much more about this topic than I do is something to the effect of, 
you know, if you don't have senior leadership, and this is really more about just cultural change in general, but I think it, I think it probably mm-hmm. applies here, which is if you don't have, you know, senior leadership on board, just don't even like, don't even bother. Don't waste your time. Like if they're not even interested in, um, in a change like this happening, you're just going to beat your head against the wall, burn out and get super frustrated and, and leave. Um, so I guess it's a really two part question. First of all, is, do you think that's actually true based on what you've seen? And then my second question is, if that's true, let's say you're someone in a situation where the larger environment is not ideal, just put it that way. And you are feeling very much at risk and you want to do something about it. How do you, how should you approach that? If you're, you're, you're not feeling safe in that environment, you're not feeling like, wow, I can really say this to my boss. Um, because of your experience of the larger environment, is it worth it? Should you, how do you, um, or is that all, is that whole thing I just said, is that just actually a really fancy excuse for just not taking a risk? (laughs) (laughs) I think that's an excellent question and it's got so many dimensions to it, but one of the people who had the most influence on my thinking and my practice early in my career it's a guy named Peter Block. Okay. Um, who you don't hear his name as much anymore. I think he, he, he died years ago. Um, but he wrote a book called The Empowered Manager. And the basic premise of this book was you are responsible for yourself mm-hmm. and you're accountable for the work environment you create around yourself. Um, and you have more power than you realize you do. And if you use what executives and other people are doing as an excuse, then you are sort of condemning the whole organization to its lowest common denominator often. Mm-hmm. And, and he said, don't be naive don't be stupid. I mean, don't be self-destructive. <laughs> um, but find ways to um, take a stand. And particularly if you're a manager or a director, um, use the power that you have um, in, in the context, in the area where you have responsibility um, to be more open, to create more psychological safety. This is, these are not all or nothing. It's not off or on. Mm-hmm. There, there's a process and it, there's degrees and steps and try things mm-hmm. and see what kind of results you get. And then give it some time and, and wait and see. Um, but do it because you're doing it for yourself. I mean, I think part of having m- doing meaningful work is knowing that we are um, acting in a moral way, mm-hmm. in a way that gives us pers- personal integrity. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we talk about that enough these days, but I think that's a piece of it. Yeah. Um, and it, it means if you see something that you think isn't working right, well, I would start with, if you see something that you think could work better, so you're not sort of, telling someone they're blaming or attacking someone, try that first. Hey, do you think we could, I mean, if we did it this way, would it's, would this be better? Or can we work together on this 
in a way that would improve it or um, make it go faster. So start with how can you connect with people to make things better Mm -hmm. uh, and see how they respond. And then as you build that, those relationships and that kind of practice or those habits, then you can start talking, raising questions like, well, that, that process or that relationship or the way we we've been communicating about those issues just doesn't feel right to me. It doesn't, it feels like it's like getting stuck all the time. This is where crucial conversations comes in really handy because it gives you ways of thinking about how to introduce these topics mm-hmm. um, that are designed to not attack. They're not they're they're designed to be sort of observational mm-hmm. and not so judgmental. Not put people on so the defensive. Can, exactly, exactly. So then you see how people respond, and then you can slowly, you know, kind of grow grow the discussion. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is interesting. So one of the things that I, what, what, one of the things that brings up for me as I'm, as I'm listening to you and I'm reflecting on a lot of other conversations I've had around this topic is it kind of goes back to that, this idea of belonging or cultural fit. And I, I heard someone mm-hmm. just the other day, actually at that conference, uh, I've said it so many times, I should say what conference it was, by the way, it was the mind, the product conference. It was great. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, so we were there and there was a guy named Matt LeMay. Uh, who does some really interesting consulting work, and and he was he was talking about um, this topic as well as a few other things. And one of the things that he said that I, I made me laugh at the time, but it really stuck with me, and I, I'm I'm still chewing on it. I mean, this has only been a few days now. Um, was he said he he doesn't like the term cultural fit or culture fit, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. And, and he said more. He said there some, and I'm I'm paraphrasing here. This is not exactly what he said, but it was something to the effect of when you say, oh, you know, that person's not a culture fit or something like that, it's sort of implying that uh, it's the onus is on that person. I think he was mostly referring to this in, in the context of hiring. Um, you know, let's say you're, you're talking about a, a candidate for a position. Um, he was saying, mm-hmm. you know, when you say, oh, that person's not a culture fit or, or something like that, you're saying, oh, it's on that person to fit into our sort of pre-existing structure, you know, like, almost like a, like a, um, like a puzzle piece, right? They have to fit some mold mm-hmm. and, uh, that he didn't think that's, that that's right. Um, and that, that what he said he prefers is the idea of culture add and the idea that like, this person will bring something to us that maybe we don't have already. They'll challenge us in, in productive ways. And I've just found myself in the days since then thinking, just sort of percolating on this idea of like culture fit, culture add, belonging. Where does this all come together? You know, how does someone know? And, and maybe we can segue into that, uh, in, in a minute here is, you know, let's say you're, you're, Either you're, you're at a place you just started working or you're considering joining a place. Uh, how do you know if, it, if you are a culture fit, if you belong there, whatever, whatever phrase, whatever wording you'd like to use? Yeah, I actually think it's really important if you're a candidate, and this goes back to the first conversation we had. If you're a candidate, you have to be assessing, is this a culture? And I, I would use the word match. Mm. Um, are you going, is, is this culture going to be good for you? Is it going to bring out the best in you um, or not? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it depends, goes to questions around how the culture handles setbacks mm. and frustrations. Mm. 
And setbacks can come because a competitor wipes out, you know, some of your market share uh, because you missed a, a technology uh, leap. Um, or it could be because the team didn't execute well. Uh, so there are all kinds of reasons why the culture can have issues. But, well, you were saying, you know, what you had, one of the reasons you'd gotten into this was because of all the time we spend at work and making it meaningful. And I think going back to an earlier theme, one of the things about millennials is they do care a lot about their relationships with each other. Mm, yeah. And definitely. And work, work doesn't trump that where, you know, with, I think my parents' generation and even to some extent, my generation, uh, and we had friends at work, but work was considered more important than friendships Okay, when we were at work. And I think it's different with millennials. I think some of them think my relationships at work are with my colleagues there are just as important as my relationships as my work. Mm. Um, they kind of come together and that, that creates something very different about the culture. And I think sometimes it scares managers because I think managers see millennials as, well, they're all going to stick up for each other, you know, and they all, they're like one group. Mm. And so we can't sort of tease them apart um, or we can't treat one differently than the other. Millennial, millennial gang. Know, <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that's really true, but I think it's some managers perceive it hmm. that way. It's really interesting what you're saying about the, and it's something I've been wondering about as well. Um, since technically I think I am a millennial by a couple, by like two years or something. But the idea of, I think what, what I'm really hearing and what you're saying is the idea of um, how personal work is mm -hmm. like that. It's, yeah, it's, it's almost, I think that's right. Yeah. And when I say that I don't mean what I'm not trying to say is that to people who are not millennials that like work didn't matter to them. Right. Or that it wasn't deeply mm -hmm. personally meaningful. That, that's not what I'm trying to say. I, what I'm trying to get at is it seems like, if I'm trying, if I'm, if I'm reading the tea leaves, right. And I don't know if I am that millennials want to, the, the kind of overused, the almost trite phrase right now is like to bring their whole selves to work, right? They want to like, be, yeah, they yeah. want to bring more of their personal self, their full self beyond what they do with the office into the office. They want to be able to have conversations at work that are not just professional development, but like whole person development, right? You know, it's, it's mm -hmm. when I've, I've had, um, you know, I've, I've, I've coached a lot of people in, in my various roles and, and some of those conversations were, you know, there was only so deep we could go in the coaching conversation and there mm -hmm. was like kind of a floor there. You know, that person was not willing to go beyond that. And okay, I respect right. that. Um, my, per, my, I'm biased in this sense. I just want to disclose, like be upfront about my bias, my perception of, of those, um, those coaching relationships was that they, that, that limit they were putting that like edge that they would not go across was actually limiting their growth professionally as well. Like, because they couldn't, there mm -hmm. was just some place they weren't willing to go. They weren't willing to talk about or be seen something like that. Um, they're like, wait, that is, that's in my, you know, that's in my personal life. It has nothing to do with the office. And it's like, well, you're still the same person. 
like that stuff going on in your personal life, you, you brought it with you, brought it with you when you showed up today. You know, it didn't just stop, uh, and and vice versa. Like, and you have a bad day at the office, and which happens, you know, it, it, yeah. it goes with you home or wherever you go after work. Yeah. Um, and so yeah. I'm I'm curious what if if you've seen anything like that in terms of the, I don't know the right terms for this, but the level of comfort maybe that people of different generations have, or maybe it's a preference for. Um, how personal things are allowed to be. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, like where the boundaries are. Yeah. Um, so here's where it's, I think, tricky. Um, up to a certain point, sharing information with colleagues about maybe personal doubts or personal beliefs um, or personal style choices can be helpful and it's good to get different points of view. And um, it brings, it creates some uh, sense of closeness and um, supportiveness. Mm -hmm. And that, can be very meaningful and very positive and very motivating. And it can keep people in an organization. It can keep them connected and uh, loyal and attached to the organization. The risk is when it goes off the rails, mm. when someone, um, well, and I'll, I deal with situations like this more often than I'd like. Someone has a, substance abuse problem mm -hmm. someone has a um now it's an uh, an emotional disorder of some kind and now we're getting into disability territory sure and um it it becomes really complicated because it creates this this tension or this conflict between the person's ability to do their job uh, and the, the job that needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so you're their confidant, you're, or you're on their team and they're telling you, you know, I, um, I'm not going to, I can't come to work on time or what, what you know, mm -hmm. whatever the issue is. Sure. And now what are you supposed to do? Are you supposed to say, I'll cover for you? Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll take care of it for you because I'm your friend. Or do you say it's time to let HR know, or it's time to let the manager know this has become an issue that that's where it gets tricky. Um, and, um, or there's a romance. <laughs> Uh, developed or it becomes more than just friendship. So I think that's where uh, it's just, I think the ideal is right. I respect that and appreciate it, but there are going to be cases, there are going to be enough cases where it creates real dilemmas in the organization. And not, and not just for the organization, but for individuals in that team, in that social circle. So we're talking about millennials and boundaries. And I actually think that 
what naturally has happened with every cohort, every one of these sort of generational groups is as their their lives change, you know, they they get married or they have children or they um, settle down in different ways that that other part of their life um, kind of replaces some of what they were getting from work. Um, yeah, I don't know that that will happen as much with millennials as it might have with the boomers or Generation X um, or Y, but um, it's certainly, I think it's likely, and I'm sort of starting to see that in some of the places where I work. Um, I think they're always going to have a different relationship with work, in part because they have come into the workplace at a time when there were so many people ahead of them and it's been, Hmm. and there's been a gig economy and there've been different jobs and, and the millennials move around so much. I mean, you know, 18 months in a job is pretty normal. And when I was Mm -hmm. coming up, if you hadn't been in a job for 10 years, there was something wrong with you. So it's changed mm, wow. a lot. It's changed Big a lot. Big difference. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. So, so if I'm hearing you right, what, 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 what do you think you're perceiving is? What I think I'm hearing is that, like, as people get as as people get older and they start to get married, have families, um, be farther along in their careers, that sort of the, maybe the scope of their life broadens, and there's just more more going on in their life. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and so work plays a relatively smaller part, mm-hmm. still an important part, but it's not like 98% mm-hmm. of their, mm-hmm. of their day to day anymore. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're, we're getting at that. And I'd add that as they move around because they don't stick it, they don't stay in one company for a long time. Um, they, they, their social circle outside of work, tends to be composed of people they've worked with at different companies. Hmm. So that's the, where, who they hang all out their friends with. friends former coworkers. Right. And then you'll find that they will say, okay, I'm going to leave this job to go to another job because that's where a friend of mine or someone I really liked is working now. And so they'll move jobs in part because they want to continue to work with um, mm-hmm. people they like. Yep. And that's not that was certainly not true of my generation or generations um, before the millennials. Gotcha. That's interesting. So that kind of come, comes back to that idea we were talking about about culture match mm-hmm. um of, you know, how people how people um match with or don't match with mm-hmm. a culture. Mm-hmm. So how should how should a uh, someone who's going through this process how should they think about um culture match, let's use that term, um, belonging. And then I think really it opens up the question of if you were assessing a culture, right? Let's say you're interviewing or or thinking about interviewing Mm -hmm. with a company. How do you, how do you do it? And so that you get the, you know, you get a good match. Yeah. So I think there are two things. One, um, a lot of the folks I'm interviewing now, one of the questions I always start with is, well, why are you interested in company X? And it's amazing how often they'll say, oh, I know somebody who works there or my cousin mm-hmm. works there or 
my roommate's um, best friend is going out with so-and-so who works there, you know? Sure. So there's, they're talking to each other and they have mm-hmm. a network and it doesn't matter what you say in the all hands meeting or what posters you have on the walls. They, <laughs> oh, yes, they, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have their own um, uh, brand uh, and their own perceptions of what the culture is. And so I think if, if you're a hiring manager or you're in HR, you're worrying about attracting talent, you need to know what the word on the street is about your company and, and how it, how things get done. But secondly, to your second part of your question, I'd say when you're interviewing, um, ask people and not don't ask HR because HR is going to give you sort of a prescribed answer. I mean, you can ask them, but be a little ask somebody else too. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> get, get some reliability data. Um, and I, there are two basic questions. One is, how do you celebrate success? And and what is success in your company? Um, you know, how do you mm-hmm. define what success is and how do you celebrate it? Mm-hmm. And then I'd listen and see, okay, is it like individual team level? Is it big company level? Is it formal? Is it informal? Um, so I'd really try to get an understanding of, of that. Is it spontaneous? Is it full of joy or is it kind of formal and structured and, you know, managed by accountants, whatever. <laughs> so that's the first <laughs> question. Or do they celebrate at all? At all. Yeah. Right, 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 right. Some places just right, don't. don't. Right, right, right. They're real hard edged and kind of, yeah. And then the second question is, um, how do you deal with setbacks? Um, and part of that is depending on who I'm talking to, I want to know, you know, in the team or in the science or among the engineers um, or in marketing. So each function has a kind of a different flavor of what a setback is. But then if Mm -hmm. I'm talking to a manager or someone more senior, I'd want to know, well, what happens, you know, if what have been the major setbacks in the last 12, 24 months and how has the company dealt with them? Because what you're trying to understand is, how open, how transparent, how much do they pull the whole company together to respond to a setback? How much do they try to isolate it? How much of setbacks get buried under the waterline and how much are they, uh, you know, above the waterline? Um, and I think those two questions, one's more on the positive, one's more on the, you know, adversity, uh, but they they're a nice way to begin to understand the culture and they're questions that people don't ask enough. I mean, mm-hmm. I, you know, people come in and I say, do you have any questions? And they turn the page and they've got like five questions and they're all totally predictable. Like tell me about the culture. Yeah. What are people asking that are waste of time or they should, what, what are they asking that they shouldn't be asking or that they, or what should they ask instead? Yeah. So they say, well, the culture is really important to me. What kind of culture do you have? <laughs> and I, just think, okay. I, I mean, I can answer that question any way you want me to answer it. Um, I just think that that doesn't give me a sense that they've really, that it gives me a sense that they've taken that out of a, a how to interview book, not 
really thought <laughs> about it. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say it's more important for them to create some context around it that says, you know, I really thrive in, um, or I do my best in certain kinds of cultures and not in others. And I'm really curious and want to understand what your culture is like. Um, then they should also be asking questions about the manager they'll be working for and say, okay, mm-hmm. tell me about what that manager's style is. How does he or she communicate? What does he or she, how do they set expectations, that kind of stuff. You can ask HR about benefits and a lot of people do. And I think that's important, but it's certainly not to me. It's not a make it or break it because most companies are competitive when it comes to benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, the question I, that people often ask that I really like is why do you work here? Why are you excited mm-hmm. about coming to work here? And so mm-hmm. it's kind of personal and it gets at, um, you you can't really give a canned answer to that question. Yeah, you can't fake that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no yeah. scripting in that yeah, one. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's interesting. What are some other What are some other ones that actually you know? It seems like the the first thing you would need to do is break out of the canned questions and answers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so you can have an actual conversation mm-hmm. with whoever you're talking to. Mm-hmm. But what, are there some other areas that are you think overlooked that you know people don't? Um, dig into enough in, in that interview process. And so that later on, you know, I think, I think in our, in our previous call, one of the things you said to me was something like, you know, one of the, um, one of the most common regrets or one of the most common statements that people who regret the job they took or regretful job takers say is, you know, it wasn't what I thought it would be. It wasn't what they led me to believe. And I'm curious if you could just unpack that a little bit more and then how people could, could, you know, avoid that really. So that so people are getting better matches on both sides. So the question people should ask is, how is this job changing? Uh, One is, why is this job open? Is it a new position or is it a replacement for someone who was here? And then I'd say, how do you see this job changing or evolving over the next 12 months? You know, is this, and I'd kind of set it up as, you know, I get the sense this is a really dynamic company where there's a lot going on. And um, I want to know, you know, how you think this job might change as a result of that mm-hmm. over the next six months and how the priorities might change. Um, mm-hmm. And and you can kind of say, I'm not trying to pin you down because I know it's a prediction. But if you had to speculate, what are going to be the biggest drivers of change in this role or in the priorities for this role. Mm-hmm. How do you, I love what you're saying here. One of the things that occurs to me is that an assumption, I think one of the things that at least I'm assuming is necessary to do this well, if you're the, uh, the, the candidate, mm-hmm. right? The person um, you're interviewing for a role somewhere is you've got to really, you really have to know yourself. You have to understand where you actually thrive and where you don't. And Mm -hmm. that seems to me like one of those, it's a little bit of a catch 22, right? Like you don't know where you almost don't know where you don't thrive until you have that experience. And then you go, man, that sucked. I don't want to do that again. Right. So, so other, you know, are there, are there, um, you know, I know there's all sorts of the, the common tools that are probably out there, but how do you recommend people understand that better so that they can actually know what they actually need and want and respond to in an environment. So the 
best thing to do is ask the people who work the closest with you. Um, and so you're, you know, if you've had a boss or a manager who you really respected and you thought you really worked well together, ask that person, say, hey, can you help me understand, you know, from your perspective, you've worked with lots of people over your career. Working with me, give me some insight into what you thought I responded best to and what seemed to deflate or just not engage me. Um, and so get some feedback from some other people, have some hypotheses about yourself and see where the, the matches are. Hmm. That's a great idea. I never thought it's, it's, it's so obvious, but it's, it's, it's totally a great idea. I've never, now, now I want to go do that. <laughs> you should. I, I want to ask everyone I've ever worked with, like, Hey, what did I, you know, what did I respond well yeah, to? Yeah. And what did I, you know, what took the wind out of my right, sails? Right, 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 right. Um, no, it's fascinating. That's fascinating. Cause it, it seems like also, um, are there other this guy, maybe this goes back to psychological safety but you know one of the things that this is probably one of those unfair characterizations of particularly of large companies but it's probably true for large organizations anywhere of any type but you know you, you think about um situations where going all the way back to early in this conversation you know, we talk about where a lot of the iceberg is underwater, right? Mm -hmm. Where there's mm -hmm. like what is presented and then there's what's real and there's a pretty big gap between the rhetoric and the reality. Uh, are there are there other questions th or, that people can ask or, or things that they can do to really kind of almost test the level there to see, hey, really how, uh, you know, how... Where, where is that level? How much above? Like, how do you tell from the outside how much of the iceberg is above or below the waterline? I think is actually what I'm asking here. So I don't think you're going to get it from interviews, uh, okay? Because generally, I think they companies are pretty careful about who you talk to in an interview. Mm -hmm. But you know, most companies do reference checks, and I think candidates mm -hmm. should do the same thing. Um, and it's kind of a ask your network. Uh, poke around, um, do Google searches on some of the top executives, read what Glassdoor mm -hmm. says. Um, Glassdoor, any single entry in Glassdoor is suspect, but, you know, as a general trend. Looking for patterns. It, looking for patterns. Yeah, it's like it's like Yelp reviews, right? Like yeah, one, yeah, yeah, one yeah. bad Yelp review, whatever. Yeah, but yeah. you see 30 of them, you're like, hmm. And, weird here. and in Glassdoor, you can, because they identify the function of the person giving the review, you can kind of figure out, okay, if you're a software engineer, go look at what the software engineers say. Um, and it might be different from what the marketing people say. But yeah. Um, yeah. And, but sometimes it, if a company is changing a lot, um, you're going to get this just it's just going to be very dynamic mm -hmm. and if you're joining a company that and one of the things to ask is you know how is the company changing are they going through a business model pivot are they trying to change their culture if I, if I hear them talk about a change program then i'm pretty i want to know more about that and how it impacts me because inevitably if you're doing a lot of change there is going to be a gap between 
the rhetoric and the reality. But that's what mm-hmm. you, ha- you kind of have to do that as part of creating change. That's different. Do candidates ever, ever, ever asked to talk to the person who, like, let, let's say it's, it, it's a replacement. You said, why, you know, why is this role open? Maybe it's a new thing, in which case, never mind. But let's say it's a replacement. Do candidates ever say, like, can I talk to the person who left? Well, if the person who was in the job got promoted or transferred, often they're part of the interview process or, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm happy for you know, them to have that conversation. left the company... If they left the company, it depends on the conditions. You know? Sure. Let's say it was a voluntary departure. Yeah. yeah. They left because their spouse moved to Michigan and they went with them. Sure. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'd yeah. say, sure. We're you know, happy to do that. Gotcha. Would it be, you think it would be considered a red flag if, if you, if you asked that and then the company said, no, is that actually a red flag or is that sort of reading, reading a problem where there actually may not be? It's hard to tell. I'd say it's probably reading a problem. I I think, look, what I tell candidates is if you really know yourself and you're working on being authentic yourself, you're going to at the same time get better and better at picking up authenticity from others. And if you Mm -hmm. spend, if you meet six people in an interview day, and you walk away saying, I think, you know, five of them were giving me canned answers or hadn't yeah. really prepared for the interview or didn't seem to know what they were doing. That's a red flag. Yeah. A big flag. Yeah, I, I remember you, you mentioned to me in our, in our last, last, tall, um, last call, sorry, was that, um, you know, not only is it understanding like what's the process for this role, how's it changing and what the mm-hmm. company's really looking for in this role. But, um, it was really about seeing like, how thoughtful is this company? Like, right. do they, do they actually know what they want? Yes, exactly. Like probably a lot of companies probably actually don't. Right. It's right. sort of surprising. You know, if you're from the candidate side, you assume they do, but I mm-hmm. guess not. That's well, so interesting. Because they've got a to-do list of a hundred things and yeah. a key person has left and they have to fill the position and they often don't stop to think carefully about how the position has changed what you know what are the priorities and if they have a really strong hr function hr might push them and get them to do that but sometimes unfortunately companies that don't really care a lot about their culture or their people will take a lot of shortcuts. One of, the, one of the places I want to start to wrap it up here is, is that I'm really curious about, as you mentioned, um, companies that have a strong HR function, mm-hmm. right? And, and you sh- follow that with companies that really care about their culture. Mm-hmm. I could see the assumption being made that if you like, if, if, if one, then the other is likely to follow, but the inverse is not true, right? You might have, you might have really great HR people, but not at your company leadership may not actually care that much about your culture, even if they say something to the to otherwise. But I, I imagine if you really actually care about your culture, you would be much more likely to have a strong HR function. But it, it depends yeah. on the company size. So when you're really small, like 20, 20 employees, you, you can do it on your own if you care mm-hmm. and you read and there are books and there are people out there like yourself who, you know, think about this and practice it. Once you get 
up to 30, 35 employees, you're starting mm-hmm. to, your, your culture is creating itself, whether you like it or not. And you really mm-hmm. need someone to help you focus on it and keep you honest about it. Um, and so that's why I work with a number of companies that are really small, like around 20 employees. And my sole purpose, well, I have a few other things I do, but largely it's around helping them think about their culture and mm. helping them practice it as they grow. And sometimes yeah. that's like four hours a week. Sometimes it's eight hours a week. It's not a ton of time, but it's being in the right place at the right time to have the right conversation. Sure. Yeah. No, it's funny. I think you actually just answered you, you answered my next question, which was, you know, what's, uh, I was, what I'm imagining is I think that, I think the HR function, I think that people who don't work in the HR function undervalue it yeah. uh, and they undervalue culture. I mean, it's one of the mm-hmm. reasons that culture is going to be a, a very major theme of, it, it is a major theme of this show. Like the show started as a, a product management podcast, uh-huh. right? But it, it's, it's broadening and evolving in, into much more of, you know, yes, that's an important part about like not only the products that we make, but then very quickly you get into, okay, well, how do you make those products? And right, then right, right there, you're at culture. Mm-hmm, uh, and mm-hmm. so that's how culture really came into the conversation. And so um, one of the things I find myself wondering, and I'm curious if you have, if, if you've seen this or have any thoughts is, uh, what, you know, let's say you're a small company, right? Mm-hmm. Say 10 to 20 people, let's call it that, right? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're out of the absolutely nascent phase, you know, right, of, of right. like, three people around a, a kitchen table, <laughs> but you're not, you know, you're not like a full blown big company yet. Yeah. And let's leave the outliers like Instagram out of this one. Um, what, what, what argument would you make or what would you, if you were to try to convince those people and say like, here's why you should be investing now in HR and in mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. Um, because they have so many other things on their plate mm-hmm. that feel mm-hmm. like they're, you know, way more urgent, more important, like whether mm-hmm. it's, raising the next round, getting the next version of the product out, et cetera, et cetera. What would you say to those people to say like, yes, this is actually worth your precious time right now? So do you care about how things get done? Yes. Okay. Then you care about culture. And if you're not thinking about it intentionally, it's going to happen to you unintentionally. And it's going to happen as a result of sort of the amalgam of the people you hire. And if you're hiring them just for some technical skill they have without regard to their integrity, to their communication skills, to their positive problem solving, then you're going to get what you get. And the odds are Mm -hmm. that some of those folks are going to be corrosive, toxic, competitive in a bad way. And Mm -hmm. that's, going to have an impact on everyone. It, you may not see it in the first year, you may not see it in the second year, but you'll see it in the third or fourth year. It will drive turnover, it will slow you down, you'll be your resources won't be as aligned or as productive or as creative and you'll have a hard time attracting talent. Hmm. So so to sort of paraphrase uh Brené Brown's latest Netflix special you uh, you either do culture or culture does you. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> something something like that, and and by the time you're at the effect of it, uh, if you weren't intentional, it's probably going to hurt a lot. Oh is yeah. My guess. yeah, 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 yeah. 
I'm convinced that culture change is probably the hardest problem in business. Um, it's so much more complicated than even something incredibly complex like building and shipping a product. Partly because if you haven't been paying attention to it, it's happening unintentionally. It's the the iceberg is under the ice, not just under the waterline, not just for candidates, for, but for employees, for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and it's really hard to know how to get things done or the way you get things done comes at a very high personal emotional cost. Yeah, the experience sucks. Exactly. Yeah. That's a technical yeah. term. You <laughs> technical term. Experience sucks. sucks. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah. So, um uh before before I ask my last question, where can uh, anybody who's who's following this and wants to go deeper, where can they uh, where can they connect with you online or is there any anywhere you direct them to that you want them to put their energy if they want to follow up and learn more uh, or connect with you? Uh, LinkedIn, it's fine. It's probably okay. the easiest way. And and I'd also okay. say, look, I'm I'm not marketing myself. <laughs> I'm happy to share share with people and share books and sort of forums and things I think will be helpful. Um, but you know, I'm I'm not trying to. I'm not on Twitter. Totally. <laughs> I'm not on Twitter. <laughs> and I will never be on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. No, I just, just thought I would ask in case yeah. there's somewhere you wanted people to, uh, you know, some, someplace, some door you did want to open. Yeah. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap it up with just one rapid fire question, which is, if, so if you, it, it's rapid fire in the sense the question is short, your answer doesn't have to be. You can, you can, take as long, you can go as long as you want, but the question is intentionally trying to be short. But if you could have someone who's a, who's a leader in an organization that's listening to this make just one change in their culture that you think would have the biggest impact in creating an, an enlivening work environment, what change would you have them make? Listen better. So I think most executives, most people in organizations in life don't listen well enough. And so learning how to listen better um, because just the act of listening is an act of validating and appreciating the other. Um, and that creates meaningful relationships. It creates respect. And it leads to psychological safety, which I think leads to trust. And that just leads to good things. For people, personally, for relationships and for businesses. Perfect. Well, on that, I just want to say thank you so much for coming. And honestly, it's been it's been such a such a fun conversation, and we've gotten to cover actually an enormous amount of ground. I had so I literally had pages of notes of things I wanted to talk about, and we actually hit a huge oh, number good, of things, good. I'm so glad. which is which is a wonderful surprise because that almost never happens. Um, <laughs> but this has been so much fun, Becky. Thank you for your time okay. and for uh, just coming and being so open and generous with your expertise and your experience and. Um, helping us all do what we're, at, what we're here to do. So yeah. thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Lots of fun for me too. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us reach way more people and build this community up. For show notes, links to the resources, and everything else we discussed, please go to enliven.fm. Feel free to reach out with questions, feedback, or just to say hello by emailing connect at enliven.fm. Be sure to subscribe and until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. We'll see you soon.